Drink the Wild Air, we're going to be talking to people who, in different ways, explore the limits of what might be possible. Scientists, explorers, artists and thinkers who ask questions that reframe our reality. People, in short, who are different from most of us. Never happier than when, as Lewis Carroll might have put it, dreaming up six impossible things before breakfast. Yet while they are exceptional, they also remind us of the adventure inside all of us, of the thrill of those moments when we look at the world around us and realise it is infinitely remarkable. As a young kid, every now and then I would have incredible dreams of flying and it was always in the morning that I'd remember them and just before waking up and they were so vivid they were so vivid that I actually knew though that I was dreaming but they were so real that I had this thing I would do in my head where I would basically say to myself okay to prove now that this is actually happening when you land don't put your feet down you'll have grazed knees and then when you open your eyes you'll be able to look down and you'll see your grazed knees and that'll be your proof that you're actually flying. Adventurer and conservationist Sasha Dench made headlines around the world in 2016 when she took to the air in a paramotor to follow the migratory route of the Berwick Swan. Her extraordinary journey was as scientifically important as it was spectacular, and in 2020, as a result of her work, she was made UN Ambassador for Migratory Species. I'm Rachel Halliburton, and today I'm talking to Sasha about how, as co-founder and CEO of Conservation Without Borders, she continues to do critical work raising awareness about climate change. Among other things, we're going to look at how last year she made headlines again when she followed the migratory route of the osprey from Scotland down to Guinea in West Africa. Migration is is something people have only started to understand over the last hundred years or so, isn't it? I think before that, there were all sorts of theories. Um, Some thought that birds hibernated in trees. Some people thought that birds could completely change shape. The strangest theory was that barnacle geese were actually born from barnacles. One 18th century pamphlet thought they went to the moon. But the real fact that birds fly thousands of miles annually on perilous journeys is just as extraordinary as any of these. How did you first become fascinated with this process? I was not aware of this leaflet which mentioned that birds fly to the moon and I'd love to see that. Um, and I have to say, I, I don't remember ever becoming particularly aware of it. My My parents were really interested in wildlife. I've grown up talking about wildlife and hearing this, you know, hearing of birds doing migrations. I think my first real fascination with the scale of it didn't happen till much later in life. I would put it down to a moment in Scotland at a small wetland centre called Calaverock. And I was out actually trying to take a crew out to film the barnacle geese, which were there at the time. And I hadn't seen them in large numbers myself. And as we walked out onto the reserve, quite leisurely, all the kit in tow, suddenly one of the wardens yelled, get down, get down and get ready. And so we all ducked down at that moment, 25,000 barnacle geese took off and flew low over our heads. And when I say low, I mean at sort of five and 10 metres. They were just lifting off and going out for, for the evening, where they, they spend their evenings and their nights um, out on the, on the firth, out on the water where it's safe. And when they get the trigger of a certain level of low light, they just go en masse. And it was the most moving spectacular spectacular, incredible moment for me. I managed to film it uh, beautifully, but unfortunately over the top of it, there's me half swearing. Um, So all the audio is quite unusable. It seems it's not just as an idea this appeals to you then, but also emotionally. 
because the important work you have done, you are you are an ambassador for migratory species, yet you are also an adventurer and have taken astonishing risks to do your work. Before you became a conservationist, you were a champion freediver. Clearly, you've never been someone who was going to settle for anything routine. Probably not. I probably didn't have a particularly routine childhood either. My childhood, I was kind of moving quite a lot between suburban Sydney to the bush. And then I had a while in, in the mountains of Switzerland with other with my grandparents and otherwise in a in a in a manor house in Suffolk in England. All of those were were really quite different mixed experiences for me. I guess what I figured out pretty early on was that what made me feel rich were amazing experiences. At times we had very little money with my grandparents in England, for example, we had quite a lot, but all of that was kind of irrelevant. What made you rich were experiences and meeting incredible people. So that I always knew was going to be important to me. You did mention that I took astonishing risks. Now, I don't think I've ever seen it like that. For for me, what I always knew was that I, I loved being outdoors, but I wasn't good at any of the normal outdoors things that you do with schools, for example. I quite liked running, but I was not very fast. I didn't have that great endurance. I was really strong in the water, but I wasn't fast at it. Um, but I knew I had some particular talents. And one of those was that in the swimming pool, playing mermaids, I could hold my breath longer than anybody else. In fact, long enough to scare people. So I thought a power like that was potentially something that I should somehow use uh, one day. And so I guess what it was, it was me trying to figure out what were the what were the things that I was particularly skillful at, and uh, and how could I use them to make a unique life be as powerful as I can, I suppose. For a long time, it seemed that oceans were going to determine your future. As well as being a free diver, you were a turtle geneticist and you also worked with sharks. With sharks especially, there's no lack of risk in adventure. What was the work you were doing with them and how has it informed what you do now? Mm, The most important uh, work on sharks for me was a project I started along with a few other people just going out and surveying the shark nets off Sydney. I'd grown up as a kid swimming in different beaches along the, the North Sydney coast, and I knew there were shark nets out there. And like many others, I had assumed that the shark nets were a barrier between the swimming beach uh, and the ocean so that sharks couldn't get to, to the beach and to the swimmers. It wasn't till going back years later after having lived overseas that I decided to go out and swim out to a shark net and see what it actually was. And um, was completely horrified by what I found that actually what they generally are are is a couple of uh, nets that are just set off the coast. They have not a barrier in any way. They're normally about 10 metres high, about 100 metres long, and they're they're set out. They don't go to the bottom and they don't normally reach the surface. And on a five-kilometre beach, there might be two of these uh, set at either end. So they are basically there to randomly catch things that happen to be coming through. And in swimming out there, I found all sorts of things caught in shark nets. Not a single one of those things that I found was dangerous. The most might have been a large a large hammerhead, but a large hammerhead is not interested in people and has a, a mouth and a head structure that makes it not really suitable for attacking people anyway. And I was completely horrified with and horrified that having grown up as a kid in Sydney and being a biologist that I'd not known this. And so yeah, I started to go out and survey the shark nets and then speak to people about it. 
I then realized that actually there was very, very difficult to get any information. The fishing boats that did the maintenance, they basically would pull the nets up, take the dead things out of it. They weren't able to give any information. The government department didn't want to give any information about it. So it was just getting thicker and thicker. And I was getting more and more annoyed and confused about why we were doing this when I had in my kind of heart that Sydney was a place that really tried to look after wildlife. And so eventually, with the help of a couple of NGOs uh, and Freedom of Information, managed to get pages of data. And it, I they appeared as a thick wadge of printed materials with draft printed across all of them um, so that you couldn't put it into any kind of scanner for it to automatically read it. So I had to manually, with a friend, go through all the pages and the records were awful. I mean, they showed vast numbers of animals being killed, very few of them actually dangerous. The key thing for me was once we'd gone through all this data and I started trying to talk about it as a biologist, people were not particularly interested. Uh, certainly the media weren't nearly as interested as I thought they ought to be, that we had this random culling program going on that was killing everything from dolphins to hammerheads and lots of uh, small fish. And then I started to film it. And then people were kind of interested, but I realized that people are already quite used to images of fish and marine life in fishing nets. Once we had, you know, some stunning images, I managed to start getting some interest as a biologist with images. People were sort of interested, but then I became Australian freediving champion and suddenly everybody wanted to know what I had to say about the shark nets. And to be honest, my instant reaction as a scientist were to be horrified because I couldn't believe that people were suddenly interested just because I had a sports title attached to my name. I went through a bit of a process of realising if that's what it took to make a message palatable to people and an Australian audience is very sports focused, then why shouldn't I just run with it? It was a bad flight in a small plane in the Caribbean that made you determined to understand air. Can you talk about that flight and what it did to you psychologically? It was some years ago now. I was on an expedition with an anthropologist visiting various different communities in South America who'd received lots of international funding for an environmental development program. And so our mission was to go out there and have a look at the project, see primarily actually how the money had been handled. But we were going out and meeting the most uh, incredible people. So on this one particular uh, trip, we were to go out to one of the tiny islands in Panama, the um, called the San Blas Islands. And there was in all of the this 3000 islands there and only a couple of them have got a landing strip on them. And most of them are too small. So you've got a, a small island and a landing strip, which has been built out much longer than the island. So we set out. It wasn't just us. There was our small plane, two seat, two seats in the front and four in the back and uh, three other planes, I think, at the same time. We found ourselves confronted with a large storm front. And whilst the other planes all decided they'd turn around and go back again, our pilot, who was a young local guy, decided that he thought he could outrun this storm. Uh, and it turns out he couldn't. So we then spent about 40 minutes being thrown around in this tiny plane uh, in a thunderstorm 
being sucked up, thrown around, and uh, there was lightning inside the inside the cloud. The whole lot was terrifying. At one point, uh, I turned several times to the pilot and was asking him to give us some information, uh, but he'd gone really pale in the face as he kept just trying to dive down out of the clouds. But the cloud level was so low that as we came out of the bottom of a cloud, we were then basically strafing over the tops of trees or the tops of the water, but with no landing strip in sight. At one point, I was saying to him, "You just just go home. Like, let's just turn around and go back again." And the only thing he said to me in that whole time was, um, I haven't got enough fuel. So at that point, it was find the landing strip here or uh, or we were ditching in the sea. Obviously, I'm I'm here. So he did eventually come down and we found the, the landing strip. As we uh, stopped and uh, got out of the plane, he lay on the ground with his arms and legs spread wide. Afterwards, it never stopped me getting into a plane, but it did stop me. It basically meant that I was terrified of any kind of turbulence. I found myself at one point taking off from, uh, I think, uh, uh, from Luton Airport in a plane. And it was just the normal sort of turbulence you get when you lift off the runway and you're going out over the tops of buildings. I turned to the lady next to me and I gripped her arm so hard that I'd eventually gave her little crescent marks from my fingernails in her arm. And looking at it afterwards, I was like, this is ridiculous. And so I realized the best thing I could do was actually learn to understand air so that every time there was turbulence, I could say to myself, that's why there's turbulence here. It's not that the plane is falling apart. It's not going to last forever. Or, you know, if I could just rationalize my way way out of it, that might be the best way. But yeah, I lived with that. I lived with that terror for um for several years before I I came upon the idea of learning to paraglide. And that's the extraordinary thing you've achieved international fame as a human swan. And in 2016, you traced the migratory route of the Buick Swan flying in a paramotor from the Russian Arctic to the UK. It does sound like a bit of an epiphany discovering the paramotor. Can you describe a couple of moments on your early flights when you fully realised what possibilities it opened up to you? Mm, Okay, well, for anyone who doesn't quite understand how I went from being terrified of uh, turbulence to getting in a tiny paraglider, I did try various different aircraft, but they were all too complicated. And I'm also a bit of a control freak. So going up in a in a toad toad glider, for example, the number of different things you have to get right. And the, the day we were dismantling the plane at the end and I was told well if you pull the pin pull this pin the the wings come off to pack it away at that point I was like no if I uh I'm not a good enough engineer to know whether that single pin that's holding the wings on is is solid and then I looked at a paraglider and while that looks really flimsy and fragile and potentially unsafe the mechanism of flight is very simple and you can check it at every moment in flight And so that's eventually what I went for. The other amazing thing about the paraglider is that you can feel the movements of the air everywhere because there's tiny lines that are connected to the wing, but in particular to the rear of the wing where you you steer from. Um, That gives you a lot of feedback. So you know in relation to you, your body, the wing and the clouds, where the turbulence is. And if there's lifting air on one side, you feel the wing on the right-hand side twitch that there's lifting air. So you really get good feedback and the ability to actually try and read the movements of the air, which are invisible. So as soon as I then saw uh, somebody flying a paramotor and realised that in a paramotor you could fly in early in the mornings and late in the evenings when the weather was calm and you could completely focus on like work, looking down at the landscape around you, 
photography and all the rest of it and fly in the most beautiful moments. You can't paraglide when there are when there's no air movements going on. So just having a motor on your back opens up a lot more possibilities. There was, I guess, there's a couple of, of key flights. I mean, my first flight ever was the, the first flight I did completely alone with nobody watching, despite what people might think. I'm pretty cautious. So from when I first learned to fly, I'd pretty much always fly where there were other people around because I didn't know what I didn't know. And you're flying with a spinning propeller, a petrol tank, um, a, a load of fabric and, uh, and weather, which does its own thing. So I always wanted to have feedback and input and learn more. The first time I ever flew alone and felt completely confident doing so was a bit of an epiphany. And it made me realize that actually, you know, you could you could take this small aircraft quite incredible places. There was one particular flight that I was doing over a wetland in um, wetland in the southwest, a wetland that had been created. And as I was up there flying, I was flying in a new wing, which was a bit faster than normal. And it was just at the same time that the Buick Swans were heading off on migration back towards the Russian Arctic. And as they were going back, I'd got in some uh, data from colleagues about the speed that the birds had been recorded flying across the channel. And as that was in a fairly straight line and we knew the wind speed, we actually had a really good idea of what speed they were doing and what altitude. And I suddenly realized, oh, you know, I'm doing about the same speed and the same altitude as a paraglider, I was also facing many of the same challenges that the birds face. So for example, high winds on takeoff are a challenge. Potential collisions with power lines are another challenge. Being constantly on the lookout for safe places to land and to roost. So there were many ways that in fact, you could help get inside the head of birds on migration to figure out what they might be thinking, how might they be responding to a changing landscape. One of the most inspiring aspects of your work is the fact that you take a, a large problem like the gradual eradication of a species and then work out a series of achievable targets to combat it. What were your most striking discoveries when following the Buick Swan? One of the key things with migratory species like the Buick Swan and the issue for them was that we'd lost almost half of them in the previous 20 years. And if you added up all the information that scientists had on all the threats, they didn't add up to being a big enough impact on the birds to be causing that level of decline. So there was something that we were missing somewhere along the flyway. The Buick swans fly through many countries. I flew through 11 of them. They all have different languages, different cultures, some different approach to conservation. Russia has completely different red list, for example, of protected species. All of that was really confusing. The, the key issue was that there were many problems the scientists were facing. And in fact, they were asking me initially for something quite simple. They were asking me to help get all those different audiences of people that were causing an impact. So we're talking potential hunters in the Ru Russian Arctic. Uh, we knew that many of the birds, one third of the birds have got shot in their tissue. That's living birds. So they're getting shot at. There's protected everywhere. They're getting shot at somewhere. How can you bring everyone from hunters, find who they are, hunters in all the different countries, farming communities, the fish farmers, those involved in energy generation and power companies. How do you get all of them to the table at the same time to try and look at how we can tackle all the threats? And how do we figure out what we're missing? On the expedition itself, one thing I was able to do is pretty much stop and land anywhere in a paramotor whilst you generally need permission to take off. From a field, you don't need permission to land because if you need to land, you have to. So that gave me the ability to stop and land and speak to people everywhere. So um, there were many things learned on the way. A key thing was targeting hunters, but learning slowly flying across, just across Russia, that our image of hunters was very different to what we'd probably imagined 
beforehand. So hunters with everything from uh, Nanette's family herding reindeer uh, in, in remote areas. In some areas that were more developed, in a school, for example, I, I spoke to a group of kids from the age five to 18 in the room at the same time. And I'd asked, you know, are all the kids here interested in nature? Is there a lot of interest in nature? And the teacher said, well, yes, most kids start shooting at about nine years old for their family before school. So I realized that time, okay, the hunters we're talking about include nine-year-old kids. And they were wide-eyed and really fascinated, and they were desperate to know more about Buick Swan and migration. It wasn't this picture of the Russian hunter that we'd imagined. So we realized then we had to really widen and maybe open up our minds a bit more to, to new ideas. The incredible response to people, if I approached them, giving them an opportunity to be a hero in the story. So not approaching hunters by saying, we know you're part of the problem, giving them an opportunity uh, based in, in different ways, but presenting a story as in, we know that a lot of birds are um, have shot in their tissues. Can you help us to figure out how that happens, where it's happened? And more importantly, do you have any ideas for how we can stop that? In all, pretty much all conservation issues, the people that are the bad guys that we consider the bad guys are actually the ones who can be the heroes of our story. So we need to allow them to, to be that. So that was a key thing. Um, I think another big learning for me was the just the impact of climate change, seeing it for myself so viscerally, speaking to people who were in one in the next community when I said to them, you know, what do you think of... Um, people in the West that don't believe in climate change. And bearing in mind, we're talking a few years ago, there were more people that were that way inclined. They, a load of wild Nets men were pretty much rolling around laughing, going, but you're supposed to be the educated, well-off people. How can you not see this? Because for them, it is so real. The seasons are changing. The landscape is changing. Parts of their islands, the permafrost when it thaws, uh, breaks away on the edges of islands. So islands are getting smaller. For them, there's big oil pipelines that run across the Russian Arctic. And when the as it's getting warmer, the permafrost is collapsing in various places and it collapses underneath the supports that hold up these oil pipelines. And they collapse and leak oil. And I said, you know, are you are you really worried about that? And they're like, well, it happens quite regularly. It's not a it's not a something that might happen, maybe that happens. Right now, uh, you're doing a project to follow the migratory path of the osprey, and you've already completed the outward leg of this journey. People can download the beautiful series on Radio 4, Tracing Your Journey from Scotland to Guinea. This is in part being done in memory of Dan Burton, your cameraman who died in the same paramotor crash in which you yourself were badly injured last year. It seems very characteristic of your determination and bravery that you've decided that this is the best way to celebrate your colleague's memory. Yeah, Dan was very special. Uh, he had a unique set of skills that I'll never again have in another flying buddy, uh, apart from the fact that he could fly paramotors and would fly in you know challenging conditions, didn't mind landing with in remote communities with people we didn't know who didn't speak the language. Um, he was also a diver and we'd first met um, through the world of freediving. He was often working as a, as a safety diver for freedivers. So, yeah, we had a lot of connections and a lot of unique skills together. But over the years, he'd been more and more convinced of the importance of conservation. And I just know that, I mean, he was excited about the Flight of the Osprey project and um, yeah, I hope to carry on doing him proud. We did incredible things together and I hope to carry on that legacy. 
The osprey story is a relatively good news story in today's wildlife terms. This Scottish bird of prey was almost eradicated by hunters and collectors. But in recent decades, breeding programmes have pushed their numbers up to around, I believe, 250 breeding pairs in the UK. Yet 60% of the birds still die in their first year because of migrating. What have been your most important discoveries on the first part of your expedition? So yes, we we set off from Scotland and we're following a group of birds from Scotland and England. But in fact, they were eradicated right across Europe in different countries. So in, in many countries, they were extinct. We came across or had people come and report to us, I think, 32 or 33 different threats to the birds. Some of them I and conservationists I speak to you hadn't heard of. One of those, for example, was the the spraying of wetlands during the migration season to uh, destroy the mosquito population because the tourists, they promote the regions for tourists to come uh, and enjoy the migration spectacle. So come to the wetlands, but we can't have a mosquito population there completely ignoring the fact that the mosquitoes are the food for the small birds, but also the food for the fish, which the ospreys are feeding on. This made absolutely no sense and um, makes no sense to anybody if you, uh, when you make it clear. Um, but for some reason, they seem to be able to trump it by saying, ah, oh, but we need the local economy and tourism. But this is not going to last. <laughs> like You might have a couple of years left of this, but that won't last. So there was some uh, some stupidity on the way. The impact of the drought across Europe, that was uh, pretty shocking. So there was a mass death of fish in the river Oder, which is between Poland and Germany, um, wasn't just because of the, um, the the lack of water due to drought. It was the lack of water and the input of large amounts of mining waste that were going in. So it's this high concentration of mining waste, which caused the initial fish death. There was an, an initial fish death which killed a load of fish, but then as those fish rotted and bacteria ate them, it sucked a load more oxygen out, and there was a second wave and it killed the vast majority of all the fish in an entire vast river between two countries. And that was, you know, that was triggered by drought, but something like that could be devastating for any ospreys trying to migrate from across uh, northern Europe. When there's vast fires, as there were in France and in Spain, it was not only the risk of the fires to the resident populations, which have been reintroduced to both those countries, but the fact that it causes a barrier to flight. So the smoke, whilst ospreys, for example, are really strong uh, flyers and they will fly through some cloud and fog and even some rain, they can't fly through uh, smoke. People have been gripped uh, by the story particularly of Kirk, Glenn and Tweed, the young ospreys whose paths you were tracing. Have their responses surprised you? I had an inkling that people would love the stories of these three young birds. There was also an adult called 4K who has actually done the journey several times and had been wearing his uh, satellite tag for um, for some time. But with a name like 4K, it's very hard to remember. I guess I'm, I'm not surprised uh, particularly, but I'm really thrilled. But the, also the fact that we managed to engage people from other industries through that as well. So when one of our birds decided to hitch a ride on a couple of ships, we managed to get the shipping industry excited about it and get onto an investigation to figure out exactly what ships. And then we had captains of ships going out 
and uh, seeing if they could find signs of the bird and then telling other people. And so other ship's captains emailed in to tell us that they they had uh, birds on uh, on their ships as well and, and share information and photographs. So the fact that um, it could not only grip the usual osprey fanatics, and there are quite a lot of them that watch osprey cameras throughout the breeding season, the fact that the stories of these, uh, these birds brought uh, people from industry together as well was inspiring and a good sign for chances for conservation in future. Partly because of your injuries, you've been doing much of the journey overland. This inevitably has raised new dimensions to your challenge, not least travelling through a zone which had landmines. What was the greatest difficulty you faced? Do you know, when I set off, I still had, so I had my right leg in a large boot and maybe still in a cast and my left leg was in a a metal frame that was used to regrow some of the bone that was lost in the accident um so I was yeah very challenged in terms of ordinary mobility we'd hoped that the frame would come off before the expedition the surgeons kept saying we'd rather keep it on a bit longer so it actually stayed on for um most of the journey even through Africa and I guess I I had assumed, as many did, that people would have less and less patience as we went further south and then down into Africa. There'd be people who would have less and less patience. There'd be less and less facilities for somebody who has such serious mobility challenges. I mean, I was, you know, camping and squatting using a squat loo, for example, was going to be pretty impossible with my leg situation. But in fact, what I found was that people were potentially more and more impressed at the fact that. I was willing to put my body through that. So walking around at some point, for example, trying to walk maybe a couple of hundred metres up a hill. In fact, as soon as we got into Africa and Morocco, found rather than in lots of parts of Europe, people will look at your situation like that and actually feel such, I guess, sympathy, but they'll look away because they don't really know what to do. What I found in Africa was that more and more people, complete strangers would stop and wish me well or you know say you know say wow you're an amazing strong woman some version of that in whatever language if anything people were um more and more impressed by the what I was prepared to do to um carry on a conservation mission and where I was prepared to go and the fact that we carried on with our original plan which was to go and be with Africans who are live with Africans the way they are living in the places they're having to work and do conservation rather than, you know, sticking to to hotels and things. My key mission was to go live with people and figure out actually where are their superpowers and how can you you make them stronger? What are their views of the situation and what needs to change? Because it's going to be far better than than, uh, what I can learn or imagine sitting uh, in the UK. You're preparing now to follow the return migratory route. Uh, What are you anticipating? The main aim for the return journey, to be honest, is to use the data, the imagery, the incredible stories we have from people and try to start conversations from there about what we can do to change it. And the best way of doing that is during the migration when the birds are there and with a powerful film and images to to help inspire them. Now that we've made bonds with people, every day I get multiple messages from different partners across Africa with updates and things. Now that we've got a stronger network, that's what I'm really anticipating is that we will be able to use everything we've learned to start trying to to drive change where we need to.
We've reached the point in Drink the Wild Air where I normally ask what film, music and book has inspired your work? So let's start with start with music. Has it inspired my work? I guess it's inspired me and it's not a particular song, but it's music in general. So as a young kid, every now and then I would have incredible dreams of flying and it was always in the morning that I'd remember them and just before waking up and they were so vivid they were so vivid that I actually knew that though that I was dreaming but they were so real that I had this thing I would do in my head where I would basically say to myself okay to prove now that this is actually happening when you land don't put your feet down you'll have grazed knees and then when you open your eyes you'll be able to look down and you'll see your grazed knees and that'll be your proof that you're actually flying this is how kids minds work which is incredible but um, they were they were great. But it, what triggered those dreams? And I realized then what was triggering those dreams was my dad waking up feeling happy and he'd put on his version of happy music, some version of the Eagles or something. He'd put on happy music. And so I guess that is my my earliest real memories of of music were that it being a way of creating mood, the impact it can have on who you are, how you feel, but even what you can do. And the idea that this happy music was triggering me to have, you know, incredible flying journeys and I could fly by like moving my hands back and forward a bit like the way a synchronized swimming swimmer would, or I could climb to the top of a really high building and then get the right sort of momentum to fly. I might skip the film piece, uh, but a book that I found a few years ago I find really lovely is a book called The Wonderful Journeys of Niels. Uh, It was a book written by a Swedish lady who was asked to, I think she was asked to write a geography textbook explaining uh, kind of Scandinavian geography. And she ended up instead writing this incredible tale of a little boy who's a bit uh, naughty, ends up being shrunk by an elf for being naughty. And he goes on this journey, jumping on the back of a goose, and he flies all the way around that part of the world, meeting wildlife and things. And I, reading that, you can really see how through story you can actually learn so much about a landscape and in a way that is memorable and in a way that like lights up small children's imaginations but can also reach people who aren't reaching for a geography textbook. What is the most vivid memory that lives with you from the work you've done? There are so many. Um, One... He one was uh, in the first days of the Flight of the Swans expedition, so leaving from this small point on the northern Russian Arctic coast and flying along, I noticed off to one side of me there was a large flock of geese and swans flying together and they were flying at the same altitude as me and close enough, so maybe 100 metres away, that I could see quite clearly what was going on in the flock. There were geese flying along with swans. They were all swapping leadership kind of roles together. And then to be sitting there watching that and then watch two birds break away from the flock and eventually converge on my flight path uh, where I was thinking I was about to have to take 
um, action to avoid it, drastic action, and then to have them tuck in behind my right wingtip of my paraglider where they were riding on the, the vortices uh, behind there. And they stayed with me for, I don't know, five or 10 minutes in a moment like that just seems to kind of go on forever. It was a moment of absolute and complete joy, having been called the human swan uh, for a long time to finally feel like actually maybe... <laughs> Maybe I, I did feel like the lead bird in this flock. Uh, absolutely magical. Another key one that's landing in remote places, and it happened in the Russian Arctic the first time, but also in other countries across uh, Europe, believe it or not, where I land and have a load of kids run up to me, interested in what I'm doing, take my helmet off. And yeah, the first time that a group of girls were standing there and they looked up at me and they'd heard that someone called Sasha was arriving, but Sasha is a Russian man's name, a very common man's name. And this little girl just went, wow, can girls fly too? And I just thought, okay, if I'm managing to um, to uh, reach and inspire 50% of the population that feel like their options have been limited for a long time, then that's uh, that's got to be a, a great thing as well. How would you advise people who aren't as adventurous as you, but who want to make a difference in conservation to take action? I would just say the key thing is to figure out what makes you powerful. So I remember a moment of flying a, again on the flight of the Swans expedition and realising that I was, you know, over a really remote area going about to go and land in a community that I knew nothing about. I didn't know how they'd respond to me at all. I knew I had to talk about hunting, but I was, you know, using key skills of mine. I'd learned basic Russian to be able to land there. I flying was a, wasn't a reasonably new skill, but I'd grown up in the Australian outback. So I was pretty confident trying to survive in the middle of nowhere if I had to. Um, and I really loved meeting strangers. I'm awful at parties where I have to do lots of small talk and meet a lot of people. But I love meeting uh, unusual people. And um, and I grew up in different hunting communities as well as a child. So I had a pretty good idea of, of kind of what makes people tick. So basically find that area, uh, find things where you can combine what you're good at, what you're passionate about as well. And that's generally, yeah, probably where, where your skills are. If you have no idea what are the priorities in conservation at the moment, I would say we don't need more ecologists. I've heard so many people say, you know, I'm a lawyer and I, or I'm a designer or whatever, but I really care about conservation. So I want to go back and do an ecology or a conservation degree. And whilst that might be right for some people, I feel we have so many conservationists out there. What we could really do with the world of conservation needs the powers of people with very different skills um, to try and bring everything together figure out what your skills are, what you're passionate about, and offer your help to somebody who you think seems to be making an impact. Sasha Dench, thank you very much.